Welcome to this week's edition of F1 Nation, where we don't have Natalie Pinkham, sadly. She's gone off and have a week off. But I do have Tom, of course, who's always there. And then we've got Gerhard Berger coming in later, my old mucker from F1 Days, uh, who hosts the race against. And we'd be very interested to hear what he's got to say about F1 and what he's up to these days. And that voice you've just heard, folks, is Damon Hill. I feel I still need to introduce the 1996 champ. I'm so sorry. I didn't mention myself. (laughs) 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 But other than that, we've had a weekend off, a lay weekend, recovering from Imola, but looking forward to Portugal. How have you been? You say recovering from Imola. How's the week been? Because we've both been in isolation, haven't we? Yeah, I've, yeah, it's not much fun, is it? I mean, you're supposed to stay inside your house and you get the government phone you up uh, every day to check you're doing your kind of penance and also checking to see if you know what to do if you do get symptoms and stuff. I had a nice chat with some young person who actually was a fan. He said to me, he said, is this, can I ask, is this Damon Hill, the racing driver? And I, I thought, you can't, I said, you can't ask me that. You know, this is supposed to be uh, confidential, isn't it? And uh, anyway, he turned out he was a fan. He was very sweet. And uh, so I thanked him and asked, asked him how many calls he had to do. And he said, he got, got to do another hundred today. God, my So poor soul. Yeah. Damon, there's been a bit of Formula One news. I know you say it's been a, a lay week, but good news. And, and, and you can tell us exactly how good this news is because you've driven it. But Suzuka has agreed a three-year extension. So the Japanese Grand Prix is going to stay on the calendar until 2024, which is fab news. Great circuit, isn't it? It is a very, it's a classic circuit, of course, for, for me anyway. It was uh, one of the very important ones. So I've got one of my best victories ever against Michael Schumacher in the wet. And then I also became world champion there. So, uh, and we're going to tell a little bit of a story that links to that because I, Suzuka was the race after the Portuguese Grand Prix. Um, but it was a three-week gap between the Portuguese Grand Prix, which was the penultimate race of the championship in 1996, and Suzuka. But what a great circuit. Of course, Honda owned the circuit, and Yuki Tsunoda is is quite importantly interesting. And their victories, of course. Honda's victories in Formula 1 now. That motor um, power unit is is pretty good. They've done a lot of work on it. So they're determined to, to stay on the map, and it's great to have them back. Determined to stay on the map. And it's great to see Honda staying in Formula One in a way, because yes, they're leaving as a power unit supplier at the end of 2021, but Suzuka is owned by Honda. So that is them committing to Formula One in a slightly lesser sense, admittedly, but they're still retaining links, which is fab. Now, look, you you mentioned that three-week gap between the Portuguese Grand Prix 1996 and the title decider at Suzuka. What did you do? For three weeks. Basically, I, I didn't sleep much and I had a lot of anxiety. But I, I used up a lot of energy in the gym because uh, I was determined to be on super fit form. I did a bit. In fact, actually, I a bit overtrained for Portugal. And the steering used to be, we didn't have power steering, so the steering was quite heavy. And I remember getting in the car and turning the steering wheel and feeling like there was nothing there because I'd, I'd done so much really weightlifting and stuff in the, and, you know, beefed myself up for this race. So I, did, I, I sort of toned it down a bit for Suzuka. And then I went out to... Hong Kong because I used to get terrible jet lag so I went out a good week early before Japan I stayed in Hong Kong and just hung around but I also had to find a job Tom because if you remember I was sacked by Williams before I got to the end of the championship so after Portugal I had to go and find a job so I went and signed for Arrows. You signed for Arrows during that three weeks as well? Yes. (laughs) That's 
bonkers. I thought you might have said, do you know what? I'm just going to focus on the championship for this break. I'll deal with Arrows and Tom Walkinshaw when I get back from Japan. But you did it all at the same time. And I forgot to mention, we'd also done another, we stayed on after the Grand Prix and did another about three days testing at uh, at Estoril. You did a lot of testing at Estoril. But hey, did that extra week in Hong Kong help with the jet lag? Because I'm completely with you. I find Japan the worst for jet lag on the entire calendar. It's an eight hour time difference to the UK. And I just, I've got to the point now where I just accept I'm not going to sleep for a week and just get on with it. But if you do go out a week earlier, do you actually get in the time zone or, or was it still quite difficult? It was still quite difficult. And and then, of course, the tension from the race as well, being the title decider, meant I didn't sleep either. So I'd gone out early and actually the night before the, the race itself, I didn't sleep a wink. So... <laughs> <laughs> so it was it was all a bit of a waste of time. I might as well, like you say, I might as well have turned up a day before. It's an extraordinary thing, isn't it? And when you're in that title deciding battle and you, I think you're aware because you've just signed for Arrows. This is it. This is my one moment to win the world championship. I can't imagine how you deal with that, actually, mentally. You're right. I mean, I, I dealt with it in the same way. You look at it like it's a race, like it is any other race, but of course it's not. And your your brain is sort of playing all sorts of tricks with you. So you have to put everything into compartments, I think. So you say to yourself, okay, I all I have to do is focus on what I can influence because there's stuff outside your control. And you go into a little bit of a bubble and you literally live in this kind of insulated cocoon with a kind of force field around it and everyone else is all the press and everyone is going on around you but you kind of look at them a little bit in a detached way because you have to carry on in your own little isolation there's that word again oh no isolation so you're kind of i'm used to it yeah i'm professional isolator (laughs) and any text to jacques villeneuve during that time nothing no communication with jack but he was all you know because it was there was a little bit of frisson between us because we 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 don't we're not separate we're in the same team so we go to the same porter cabin they have it's all quite temporary in those days and they had porter cabins around the back which were our makeshift offices so it's all quite close proximity and you've got frank and patrick there and the engineers and one of the drivers in that room is going to be a world champion is it you or is it the other guy so a little bit of needle goes on but uh all fairly good natured really God. The hair on the back of my neck standing up again. I, I feel like I'm li- about to live it. Is it the Japanese Grand Prix this weekend? No, it's not. It is the Portuguese Grand Prix. And that, DH, is where we're going to focus our energies because uh, it's race number two at Portimao, race number three of the season. Uh, were you in Portimao last year? I wasn't. I went to Portimao. We had a holiday in Portugal. And I went down with my son. We went down to have met, met the guy that runs it and whose idea it was and, and who developed it. And he's, he got money from the EU, but he's done an incredible facility there. And it's a it's stunning track. He took us around it. I thought, you cannot have a Formula One race around here. Are you serious? There's like, there's blind crests. There's, I don't know how many corners. So it's a terrific track. And then me and Josh went up to the go-kart track. They got a fantastic go-kart track as well. So, and it was slightly damp. So I, I, I lapped him about three times in the wet. <laughs> <laughs> but um, it's, I'm really envious of you, Tom, going there. Because I would love to have gone to Portimao, get a bit of sunshine as well. And lovely part of the world. Well, it is. It's for those of you who aren't aware, it's right on the south coast of Portugal. It's probably one of the southernmost bits you can get to in Europe. And uh, on the Algarve, there's 
What is it? 200 kilometers of beaches in that part of Portugal. So it, it's a lovely place to be. I've had a look at the weather forecast already. It's going to be sunny. Which it wasn't when we were there in uh, in September last year. It was wet. And I remember that, that the asphalt had just been laid. And hey, racing drivers love to complain about things, don't they? And uh, complaining about the slippery asphalt. But that will have settled down a bit now. So it'll be really interesting to see what lap times yeah. they're doing with these cars. Um, and you're right. It is a roller coaster. I ran the track. Particularly, I guess it's the middle sector. Blind crests everywhere. Um, and in fact, I think someone at the FIA told me that on paper, you couldn't design a track like that now. No. Because the gradients are too steep. There are too many yeah. blind corners. But isn't it great? That's one of the positives about uh, COVID is that we're going to these circuits that you wouldn't normally have, wouldn't go to. Yeah. Uh, I mean, we're back at him and, and, and also Mugello was on the, on the calendar as well. And I think it's really great because the, the drivers are getting to experience some circuits which are not um you know not uh, not too sterilized you know they they actually got some interesting features to them yeah and this is 15 corners real roller coaster and and there's a swimming pool in the paddock now i thought after lewis hamilton beat michael schumacher's record of 91 wins when he got his 92nd win there last year i thought brilliant we're going to see lewis jump in the pool or do something you know like it's, i think people do that at monaco don't they around the around the swimming pool there but no sadly not but Anyway, it's a fantastic venue. Well, it was raining. Like you say, it was freezing cold and it was raining. So it probably didn't appeal that well, much, Well, that's Tom. true. But, but I thought, you know, the emotion of beating Schumacher might have, might have got the better of him. But while you, you haven't raced at Portimao, I'm guessing you've spent a lot of time in Portugal driving Formula One cars, right? I have. We, well, that was at Estoril. Um, so Estoril was the, the winter home of Formula One. It was our, in the olden days, they used to go to do a test in Brazil, which would have been great. They went off in the middle of the summer to, to Brazil and went to Rio and used to get sort of foggy pictures of people in Brazil lying by the pool, <laughs> <laughs> sunbathing. It looked great. Um, but uh, we used to pack ourselves, we, we used to get packed off for weeks on end to Estoril to do our testing. So the whole of the Formula One people would be down there. And it was okay because you got, I don't, people don't realise, Portugal has the highest rainfall in Europe next to Ireland. So it's right on the Atlantic. So, it, it, you know, it does get sunshine, but it also gets a lot of rain. So when we went there, it didn't always, it wasn't always sunny, but it would get up to about 20, sometimes you get up to about 25 degrees in, in the midday and then it would drop again. So, but we got some warm weather testing. That was the point of it. But um, I remember joining the Williams team once and they'd been there, they'd already been there a week and I turned up as a new recruit. And they were all getting medals. They were giving themselves campaign medals for having been there for the most time. So, uh, it, you know, you would do about three or four of these tests in the winter and you basically could speak Portuguese. And uh, you thought that was home. That's fantastic. And what was the track like at Estoril? So we've got the undulations of the Algarve at Portimao. What was Estoril like? Estoril's a good track, good tough test because it was quite bumpy. In fact, there was a bump when I first went there and I tested Nigel Mansell's car what year are we talking there we're talking what 91 well, it would be 90 i'm as a test driver i started testing for williams 91 i think so um it was a passive car that i drove and there's a, a tunnel that comes into the circuit that goes just underneath the end of the straight and uh, before the first corner and i think what happens with tunnels is they're made out of concrete and they've got quite a firm solid shape to them but the ground around them sinks so just before the tunnel, the ground has sagged. So I went into the corner the first time I went down there and I hit this bump going into turn one. And I swear to God, I got concussion. 
it went straight up my spine. My crash helmet went over my eyes. And I could, this is going to a six gear corner, first corner. And I couldn't see where I was going. I had a crash helmet. And I thought, bloody hell, I cannot. I'm not doing another lap after that. Does Nigel Mansell do this all the time? Because he, he had a reputation of being quite tough, you know. Um, and I just thought, oh, my God, you can't have that. Anyway, it was so yeah. hard. It was such a massive whack. Welcome to Formula One, DH. Exactly. After about a thousand laps, I was used to it by then. <laughs> so great track, bit bumpy, perhaps. And there have been some great moments in Formula One history. I mean, obviously nothing better than your victory in 1994, Damon. Yes, um, in 94. Yeah. Gosh, I forgot about that one. Yeah. And you started the weekend upside down on your head after meeting... Our good friend, Eddie Irvine. Well, I went to go past him. I suppose it was a little bit like what might have happened with Perez and Ocon in Imola. And I went to pass him. I think I clipped his, his, his front wheel or he clipped mine. Anyway, it was enough to tip the car up. And it did this, it did this lovely kind of graceful roll and the kind of slight bump. And I landed upside down and had to crawl out like a beetle. I'd never been upside down before in a racing car, so that was my first experience. And actually, my only experience of being upside down, I was quite pleased I had room to get out. But um, it didn't hurt. The gravel was quite deep. Was your head buried in the gravel? Yeah, because we didn't have halos, of course. We didn't have those big hoops. So it it did sink a little bit. And I was a bit concerned because uh, we have refueling in those days. So I was worried about the fuel coming out. Uh, while I'm upside down, stuck in the car, that wouldn't have been nice. So, um, yeah, gravel, I sort of crawled out, slithered out from underneath. And I was unharmed, completely unharmed. But it was um, it was interesting. Does that have sort of upset you in any way? Did you go into the next practice session thinking, well, a bit cautious through there? Or is that's not the Formula One mentality, is it? It's not, Tom, no. I can see why you're not a Formula One driver. Yeah. <laughs> Just flat, flat through next time. No, it was a slow corner. But anyway, but, uh, you know, I had... I did have in testing a massive crash. In fact, one of the biggest crashes I've ever had on turn two. What happened? There was suspension failure. So turn two is flat out, fifth gear corner. You just f- flat to the floor and it went in and this suddenly spun round. In fact, it went round so quickly, I couldn't even remember it going round. It just suddenly was flying through the air backwards and went straight into the barrier because they didn't have any runoff. There was a barrier right on the outside. So reversed into a steel barrier about 100 60 miles an hour. Well, thank goodness you went in backwards. Well, the worst thing about going backwards, Tom, is you don't know when you're going to hit. So people say that, they think that, but actually, if you can see what's going to happen, you, you're prepared for it. But when you're going backwards, you don't know when the blow is going to come. Well, hold your horses, Damon, because, drum roll, we've got Gerhard Berger in the waiting room. Well, we can't leave him out there, Tom, so let's get him in. Good morning. Gerhard. Great to see you. How are you? I'm good. Fine. Thank you. How are you? Yeah, I'm well. I'm good. I'm, I'm sorry to get you out of bed, but you, you, you get up early anyway, because I know you're a very hard worker. No, it's not a hard worker, Damon. It's the age. I cannot <laughs> sleep more than four hours. That's the problem. <laughs> to get up to go to the toilet all the time. Yeah, six times. <laughs> oh, dear. Gerhard, I was saying to Damon earlier, I said, so obviously you two raced for many years together in Formula One, but how close were you off track? Were you mates? You, you're both mates with Barry Sheen, I said. Did you hang out? I said I wasn't a mate because I, I have to be honest, I, we didn't, we didn't, I didn't live in Monaco and all that stuff. So, And you were in Formula One a little bit before me. So I, I looked up to you. I was always kind of in, slightly in awe of Gerhard Berger because you'd, you'd already had a Grand Prix career before I got to Formula One. 
Damon, yes, we we never been close friends because uh, he was in England, me was uh, in in Monaco, but. We always had a good relationship. We never had a problem. We had a lot of common friends, as you say, Perry or Paul Stewart or whoever. You know, we had close friends and it was always nice to have a chat together. And uh, the first thing I remember, Damon, is having him under the gearbox for all the race until the last lap in Hockenheim. And then my engine exploded and he won the race. <laughs> I, did, I was going to apologize to you for that. It's not my fault your engine blew up. Um, but uh, maybe it was because maybe you had to go too fast. But I do feel for you because that would have been a great, uh, great win to have had. But you got, you got some wins. You've, you've won some races for Ferrari and, you know, you've had some great. And McLaren. Sometimes, sometimes when everybody stopped, I got <laughs> But yes, in, in, in Hockenheim, I, I remember... I mean, you've been quicker, you know, you deserve to be because you've been quicker, but I know the circuit very well, and it's not wide enough, you know, so I always could put my wheels just right that he had to go to the grass <laughs> if he wants to pass me. <laughs> Gerhard's idea of fun is to put someone on the grass, and I got to tell this story about how he completely stitched me up once uh, in, in Kitzbühel, because after I stopped racing, uh, I, I went uh, to, uh, I, I was uh, I invited to go to Kitzbühel, which a lot of F1 people go to, and Bernie goes to and stuff. And he said to me, do you want to go down the street, which is the Hanenkarm? You know, it's the terrifying ski track. Okay, so Gerhard says, oh, come with me. We come up in the morning, we, we meet, and I get Patrick Ortlieb and uh, all these other downhill winners of the Hanenkarm. We'll go take you down, okay? So <laughs> I, I get up there, and they go out of the gate, and they stop about 20 metres outside the gate. And I see what they've done and I think, oh, I'll just join them. So I go down. I didn't. They knew. I know you knew, Gerhard, that it's sheet ice. <laughs> of course, I know I'm home there. I know <laughs> I see it every day. <laughs> they all stand there and they're waiting there. You can see. And now looking back, I can, I can hear the conversation. They were going, OK, watch this. So I go down. I try to stop where they are and I can't stop because it's sheet ice. And I went all the way down on my ass, all the way to the, the mouth of follow. I think it wasn't... <laughs> Yeah, well, and there's idea. all these people shouting, look out, there's an idiot coming. And, and, Tom, and the worst is, the spectators are still all on the yes, side. Yeah. <laughs> Everyone's <laughs> clapping, brilliant. Oh, you bastard. <laughs> <laughs> so that's Gerhard's idea of fun. Gerhard, we've just been talking about Estoril, and actually just as you joined, Damon was reminiscing about a massive accident he had at turn two in testing when the suspension broke. What are your memories of Estoril? I also turned two, but my suspension didn't work. I just lost it. <laughs> Out of turn one to turn two, one of my biggest crashes on the ATS. You remember my, it was, oh, wow. it was before your time, but. Uh, turbo. Yeah, yeah, it was the turbo time. And it was my second race. And it was raining and just drying up and was qualifying, you know, at the time with the qualifying tires. So half wet, half dry on slicks. And, and I just lost it there and uh, it hurts a lot Ouch. <laughs> yeah, yeah i turned to yeah. yeah i remember even something better also qualifying i went out from the pits i also made one of my first races keke rosberg and the williams was just on his qualifying flat out and then turn two i didn't see him <laughs> and he spun through turn two and you know them and there's no there's no run area nothing no, <laughs> impossible to not to to hit anything but he, he he spun there with 250 through that too, and just because I didn't look to the mirror. Did he come and have a word afterwards? He still reminds me every time when I see him. <laughs> <laughs> 
it's not a place to have an accident, that one. No, no, no. no. The thing is, both of you guys have won at Estoril. Damon in 94, and of course, Gerhard, you uh, in 1989 in the Ferrari. Yeah, even boss, in 1987, I was fighting with Alan Prost for the win, and I was leading until two laps before the end, and I spun two laps before the end, <laughs> having him on the, on the gearbox. <laughs> I finished still second, but yeah, this one was also a very, very painful loss. That 89 race had so much going on because, of course, you win it. And I don't know if anyone wants to have a look on YouTube, but at one point in the race, there's Nigel Mansell reversing up the pit lane. Then <laughs> Stefan Johansson finishes third in the Onyx as well. Damon and me would like to see Nigel going backwards. <laughs> and Estoril 89 is also the race at which Minardi led their only lap in Formula One. It was lap 40 of that very race. And Estoril was a great circuit. I always liked it a lot. It was a proper track, wasn't it? Yeah. Gerhard. Yeah. It was, yeah. you know, you could, you could, you know, it had bumps, high curves, oh, yeah. Yeah. fast corners, slow corners. It was a really good track. This is what, what is really missing now. I mean, what means a real track? A real track means up and down and curves and no runoff area and runoff area and bumps and and now it's everything so flat. You know, there's no curb anymore. It's flat. There is behind the curb no gravel bed because the surface flat. There is runoff areas. You can go forever off. I remember um, when when Jack Villeneuve arrived. He hadn't seen. He come from the United States and of course doing oval racing. And he came to Estoril for a test. And and the last corner, of course, you know, was was a bit of a you know test because it was almost 180 degrees and you just build speed through the corner and there's no runoff barrier right by the edge of the track and it's dirty on the outside and the bump and the bump and and then a big curb on the exit anyway so he comes into the test and he's showing off a bit because he's you know quite cocky and he's just won the indy car championship and stuff and he's mm -hmm. only young and anyway so he's going hey do you think you can overtake around the outside of the last corner and we're all looking at him and I'm looking at him just thinking, this kid doesn't know anything, you know. He, of course he did it, didn't he? He went round the outside of Michael Schumacher in the last in that year in that year, ninety-six. He went round the outside and beat him and won the race. And we were absolutely flabbergasted. <laughs> and, and Michael was really cross because he thought it was dangerous. And so afterwards on the podium, he was really cross with with uh, with uh, Jack and he was going up to him and saying, That was dangerous, you shouldn't have done it. And I'm just laughing, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I, I remember it was a good one in the last corner. It was a great corner. And uh, there was a bump in the middle of the corner. And I remember when I changed from Ferrari to Benetton, when I took over Michael's car, we went first time testing to Estoril. And I went out, I did a couple of laps. And I was quite, after a couple of laps, already close to Michael's good times. So I said, oh, well, not a problem. Then I tried to put fresh tires on to beat the time or go even closer. And I come to this bump in the middle of the corner and I lost it there and I smashed the car completely. So I was apologizing to the team and uh, yeah, it can happen, da, da, da. What I didn't know is that the car was bloody sensitive on right heights, you know, and it, it, it cuts the aerodynamic flow on a certain right head level. The car was unbelievably critical on bumps and you just felt it when you really try to go on the limit or over the limit. And I just couldn't handle it. And, and, and Michael developed it and, 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 and his sensoric was just fine for it. So they built the car for the next day. And the same story again. I come close to the dime, give me fresh tires. <laughs> same corner bump again. <laughs> same. I said three times. <laughs> I cannot do it. 
Good mechanics. Good mechanics. <laughs> and Gerhard, what do you make of Formula One so far in 2021? I think after having so many years, just one team dominating and knowing already after first corner, if Luis is in front, then most probably nothing going to change anymore. The reliability is so good these days that uh, they're just going to drive it through and so on. And this year, finally, we are again seeing a proper race. And I think... Um, we love to see uh, such a competitive young guy like Max against the experienced guy Luis and, uh, and, and the story between uh, Mercedes and Red Bull hitting up. And I think that's what we, we used to from all days, Damon and myself, that was, was normal, Williams against Ferrari and McLaren and so on. And even having in the last race McLaren being quite competitive and seeing a qualifying where they are all in, in, in inside of one, two tens or one tens, that's what we are looking for so long time. And Max won the battle at Imola, but do you think he can win the war against Lewis Hamilton? Has he got it in him to do it over 23 races? That's kind of what we all want to know, isn't it? Well, I, uh, I, why not? I think he's bloody good. Of course, he doesn't have to experience Lewis and Lewis show him his... Uh, way in Bahrain when he sent him out, but he learned very quick in first corner in Imola. He just said, Luis, come, try to overtake me. You're going to go off. And so I think he has already a good experience. He's still young. And what he doesn't have, he learns very quick. So I see they're going to be most probably a strong fight. I don't know how you see it, Tim. No, I think it's going to be all the way down to the wire. I think they're, cl- they're close enough and they can't develop the car as much as they used to. In fact, Red Bull, I think, get more wind tunnel time than Mercedes do. But, um, you know, you were, you were driving in the, the fun days when, you know, we had Bernie Eccleston running the show and it's all changed now. They've got, uh, you know, they've got shareholders and directors and stuff and they, they, they're very careful about what they say. So you must have some really good stories about the old Bernie days. And you also raced with, with Ayrton and Ayrton won his first race in the Portuguese yeah, Grand Prix. Of course. In the wet. That was an unbelievable race of him, yeah. Yeah. Hey, Gerhard, how bad were the conditions? So it was a wet race. It was in April 1985. Senna was on pole and disappeared, won the, won the race by a minute. How bad were the conditions that day? Because you were in it. Yeah, it was very bad. It was, was aquaplaning the whole time everywhere. And uh, I think I lost it like usual in these conditions. And Ayrton just, just ran lap by lap. And, and, and he was in the in the in the rain. He was really outstanding, and uh, he that's why he he showed it in a big way. But uh, Damon, you just told me about Bernie. I totally agree with you. When we are talking about rain and rain race and Bernie, first thing I remember, I think you've been in the must be already into the race was Adelaide when this heavy heavy rain and fog was. In, in in November. I wasn't in that one. That was that was a year that was a year before year or two before. Ah, okay, me, that okay. One. That was the worst, I tell you. Yeah. You couldn't even see the front wing of the car. It, it was so foggy and heavy rain, aquaplaning. And so so we went warm up and we went to the straight, I think in a second, third gear, not more, because you couldn't do more about aquaplaning and no nothing to see. And you're just listening and you hear a car and suddenly you saw the car that was on the, your right side or on your left side. And So anyway, we, we finished the warm up, a lot of accidents and things. We finished the warm-up, and, and we were sitting and saying, there's no way to do this race. So unfortunately, today, if it's not changing heavily, then it cannot be done. And then in the afternoon, 
the weather was still the same. Maybe a little bit better, but it's still the same, or very bad. And we, we put the cars to the starting grid. Bernie came, and Bernie went around a bit nervous, and he says, Gerd, what do you think? Uh, can we do the race in these conditions? I said, Bernie, no way. Somebody's going to die. There's no way you can start. We have to wait. You're absolutely right. He turned around, walked away. I walked behind him. Charlie came and see, and I just came to say to Charlie, start the race. <laughs> <laughs> it was the race where Bros came in in the first lap, you remember? And he said, I don't want to go anymore. Yeah. 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 It was ni- 1990, and the race was stopped. Hey, they did eventually stop it after what, 14 laps or something, didn't they? Yeah, yeah something like this. <laughs> Uh, we got a time we got a very similar thing because there was a wet race in Barcelona and we were on the grid and it had rained like that when we used to have the warm-up so you do the warm-up it's wet and everyone's sitting in their motomes we don't go outside because we think you know it's wet and so and my wife had had come down to the race and she was worried about the the, the weather <laughs> she was worried about it being wet so uh it was a guy called Roger Lane Knott who had been who got Charlie's job at that time uh, I think Charlie was there but anyway it was raining and she and so someone had got wind that she was a bit nervous about the, the race and so they took her up to the race control and the guy who's Roger Lane not showed her the control room with all the cameras and everything and he said look we've got it all under control we can see everything that's happening and she said but have you been outside <laughs> because <laughs> so, it was like getting wetter and wetter and eventually we we're on the grid and it was I was on the front row and I'm looking down and I think Bernie had got wind of the fact that we were all a bit nervous <laughs> we looked down the straight and it was like one of those infinity pools you know you can see the horizon and it's just water and then it disappears and Bernie comes up to us and he sticks his head in the cockpit of all the cars the first five cars and goes race starts on time that's it that's all he said we and we went like idiots we just went we didn't and it wasn't a conversation it was a statement that was a statement there was no question he didn't at least Gerhard got to ask what he thought but uh, Damon um, we didn't went like idiots because I think it's part of our sport and it's up to you you know to go a bit slower or a bit faster but if we want we want to show millions of fans our capability of driving a car in difficult situations. I think that's one of the things. You know, now I see the safety car. You 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 don't know already. Is it still wet enough for rain tires, or should we go already to slicks? And and the safety car is still out. You know. Yeah. So we we mm. the history of Formula One is to race also in the in the wet, not like in India where they don't race, but Formula yeah. One is in the wet. So. Of course, there is a, a point when the aquaplaning gets too far, but I, I think these days they are, they are much too careful on this one. So, Gerhard, boss of DTM, it's raining and you're sitting there and you know the drivers are a bit nervous. Should we be racing? Are you marching up and down the grid saying race starts on time? Well, it's n- not so easy, Tom, because in the end of the day, the responsibility, it's in the hand of the sporting director. And it's, uh, it's if you want, in Formula One, FIA, and that's the promoter is, is the business side. But the, the safety issues, and the, it's more on the side of FIA. And in our side, we, we don't have FIA, but we still have the ISN looking our sporting, our, that we keep inside our sporting rules. So it's not you go there and you decide what you like to decide. But of course, when I talk with the sporting director, it's, I always try to push it to the limit because if you are not careful and we go too far, 
fans will not like to see it anymore. I mean, when you talk now, all this fine because leaving the truck and all this bullshit, I cannot, I cannot stand it. You know, I mean, leave the truck. If the outside is quicker, if the grass is quicker than the, the, the surface, yeah, the, in our days, then, then you did it. it. It is not quicker usually and you destroy something or it was a gravel bed. Now, you know, when you go over curbs, yeah, the car was 10 centimeters out of it. I cannot stand this kind of regulations. Uh, when they looked into the MotoGP, the limits, the risks, what they are still taking, that's far above. And I think fans need to see this because otherwise they, they're going to lose their interest in our sport. Now, talking of things, Gerhard, that I no longer want to see, it's Sebastian Vettel struggling to get it together. This is now the first time in his career that he's been pointless after the opening two races of the season. Actually, no, it's the first time, I think, since 2009 or something. What do you make of Vettel? Do you wish he'd taken a, a sabbatical? Do you think he can get where he wants to go uh, in an Aston Martin this year? Just, what's your take on him? Uh, I mean, Sebastian is a friend and, and I like him very much. Good guy. Fantastic race driver, four times world champion. Man has everything what you need. Nice bank account. So uh, everything under control. So last year, after the season, I told, stop. I just would enjoy the four times, to being four times world champion. I would go sometimes to do some classics if you want or, or, or enjoy some other things in life. And I, I just would say I'm one of the best drivers ever been in the sport. But on the same time, you have guys that I still love to drive and keep driving and don't like to be in a car. And, and Sebastian is one of them. So... It was up to him to make this decision like he did. And um, the possibilities, what he had was, in the end of the day, just Aston Martin, what was the right image and what could deliver a reasonable good car. So from this side, he did maybe the right decision. But now seeing him this, it's, for me, reminds me a little bit to my own career. There comes a point where you still think you are doing everything right and you risk enough and you are driving quick enough and it's this and this. But it isn't. You, there comes a point where things go down. In the, in the beginning, you, you do everything by having talent and risk and push and commitment. Then comes a time you profit a lot from your experience. And then comes a time where this experience is not enough anymore to keep you up with the young guys. I had this when I was in Benetton the second time. And it's a big disappointment for everybody because they see you in a different way than from before. And for yourself, is also a very difficult time because you don't admit that the time is more or less over for this kind of performance. And I think he's, he's coming into this stage. So I still think with all his experience and talent, he can do good races. But I don't think he's the Sebastian Vettel that we know 10 years ago. So Gerhard, are you saying that you wish you hadn't gone to Benetton for 96 and 97? and that you'd retired when you left Ferrari at the end of 95? If, if, if you were being clinical about it, that's when you would have no, stopped. And equally, no. Damon, would you have stopped after Arrows in 97? After Arrows? I probably should have stopped after I got out of Williams, if, <laughs> if you really want to go out on a high. So, I mean, that's what Nico Rosberg did. You know, and the question we're all asking is whether Nico's happy. He seems happy, and he seems to, be like, he seems to feel like he's, he's got it right. And... Um, you know, you, you can't take anything away. He, he finished by beating Lewis Hamilton and then he stopped and he's got his other career interests and stuff. But what I'm, what I'm interested in is I can stop. I felt there was more 
I could give. And if, actually, if you add in the years afterwards, I, I won a race with Jordan and I also led a race with Arrow. So I think I showed that there was still some something there worth uh, having. So um, I'm, I should have stopped maybe the end of 98, but not uh, the last year was a drag. So anyway, sitting here now, we're talking about, I've, I've read some things that Gerhard has said about Sebastian, of course, a German speaking world would have heard these things and you know he said something about uh, sebastian not being so good under pressure and not being such a good overtaker and stuff and what happens is they will hear presumably this you are going to go and talk to the drivers in the press conference tom you know and you get to hear what other experienced people and old drivers like us and me and gerhard say about you and it can be quite difficult you know, I don't like to criticize drivers when they're racing because I respect them and I and so forth. But the, the message gets through. And sometimes, you know, it's, you have to start part of your brain is going to start asking yourself whether or not their observe observations are valid or not. And then and then it gets really hard, doesn't it get hard because you get everyone around you. I mean, I remember my dad was racing and everyone said he should have retired years before he did, but he didn't care. He just thought, well, it's not up to them. It's up to me whether I like racing or not. But you know, they could see something about his performances that was um, disappointing to them because they wanted to remember the driver who won five Monaco Grand Prix. I totally agree, David. And exactly what you say when you read in German what I say or hear in German what I say and you read it between the lines, uh, always protecting uh, Sebastian because first I like him. He, he was our first winner with Toro Rosso and, and, and got a good friendship with him. And I rate him very high. He's four-times world champion. So I, I do exactly what you what you just said, because it's the worst when you start to critic a, a driver, criticize you and things like this. You know, I'm, I, I hate to do this. But one thing was fact, he, he never liked the pressure. I remember already in, in Red Bull when uh, Daniel arrived and things like this. Sebastian performs the best when he is in a good situation, then he is overperforming. When he gets pressure, I think he's underperforming. I think that's fact, and, and I, I don't think with this I, I hurt him. But in general, I, I do exactly what you say. I like to protect him, and I like to even motivate him because uh, they are colleagues, and, and we know how it is. When I remember back to my last season of Benetton or to you last seasons, we still, I still won a race with, with Benetton and some podiums and, and perform and you perform. But he has another difficult one, Sebastian. Uh, Lenzi is quicker than him for the last two races. And I think Lenzi maybe is better than people thought or, and, and, and maybe he's doing a, actually in the meantime a quite good job. But still, when you're four times world champion, and the young guy is, is quicker than you. That's another big pain, you know. Yeah. All this together, I think, is in a difficult situation. Yeah? It's like no disrespect to Pedro Diniz, but he did out-qualify me a few times, and uh, that hurt a bit. <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> I was very upset, in fact, because uh, he went over the top of me. One of my last, in 99, I, I got something wrong, and the engine cut out, and he hit me up the back at, in Nürburgring and went over the top, and I thought I'd killed him. And I was really upset. And actually, that was one of the reasons why I decided I've got to stop, because if I'm going to start making mistakes and... I saw him flying, flying over the top of me and he was upside down. I just thought, I've killed Pedro. I didn't like that. So, yeah, time to go. <laughs> uh, Damon, I had the same ones in Estrel, back to Estrel. I had Patrese under my gearbox, the half race, really under the gearbox. Then I decided to go to the pits to refuel. And I forgot that 
Patricia is under my gearbox. So I need to hand up. <laughs> I just turned into the, And I just felt a, 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 a slight pain on my back. And you remember this? I one? remember he, that he one. Take off like a fighter. Oh my god! And and I was already in the bits, and I looked outside, and he was flying up like the bridge over the over the racetrack, over the start finish line. Um, but you know what? The head down and in the direction into the bits. Yeah. So I thought he's gonna land in the bits, and everything gonna be dead. Everybody <laughs> gonna be dead. <laughs> <laughs> and he landed on the beach wall just outside. You know? You're laughing about it because it's so catastrophic. <laughs> Thankfully, it didn't happen. But my God, because they had the camera pointing that way down, looking straight down the straight, and it looked like exactly what you'd said. It looked like it was going to end up in the pit lane. Oh, my God. Okay, it is now my favorite part of the show damon is it your favorite part of the show because it is ask damon i'm always slightly anxious tom as you know i don't know what i'm going to be asked but we got gerhard here to help me out uh, let, let's try let's try <laughs> all right let's fire away question one hello damon hill it's adrian from sydney australia here the question i'd like to ask follows on from the george russell valtteri bottas brouhaha that happened in a kitty litter at imola last week it seemed like a second-rate version of what happened between yourself and the other world champion, Michael Schumacher. I think you had two occasions, once at Silverstone and once at Monza. I'm wondering if you can share with us the exchange that happened between two world champions as they had a disagreement about their coming together and while they were both out of the race. Sorry for reminding you of those times, but if you could share with us about that, it'd be fantastic. Oh, Adrian. Yes, well, right. Um, it was not my finest hour when I when I went into Michael Schumacher, and he had a rather poor opinion of me, I think. Um, and uh, I can understand why. I mean, some of them were innocent mistakes, and other times they were slightly not so innocent. But um, I mean, not on my part. I never did anything crash into him deliberately, but somehow they they seemed to. I got a fa- fatal attraction towards him. But the one with George Russell. And Valtteri was interesting because George did actually allude to the fact that he said something along the lines of if it was anyone else, he wouldn't have done it. Meaning that he felt that Valtteri had some vendetta against him or didn't want him to succeed because it would be difficult for Valtteri's career being overtaken by George Russell in the Williams. And I think maybe that was in George's head. And since that incident, he's come out and apologised and he's made all these contrite statements and uh, and no doubt he'll be questioned mercilessly by Tom when he gets to the Algarve Grand Prix on the, on this subject. Oh, he will. Gerhard, what was your take on Bottas and Russell at Imola? For me, it was a race accident. I mean, I, I don't put the fault on, 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 on Bottas, not to Russell, because if I remember back, Damon, in Hockenheim, when we was going the last 10, 15 laps, you, you, we, we had this situation 10 times where you was coming and, and you had to set in the end, uh, you had to lift off and you had one wheel on the grass and I had to do what I had to do. And that's the same for Bottas. I mean, you cannot wave through the other guy. So, of course, you make your car white and, and, and the other guy has also to see when, when it's possible and when it's not possible. So and, and if it's not possible, you have to lift off. And if you don't do, then you have a crash. But I wouldn't give a fault to, to Russell, not to Bottas, to be honest. And going back to I, your I day and how, Adrian's how you question, Gerhard, have you had any really good rows with another driver after an incident on track? I, I think a lot. 
One of my famous singles with with Martin, with Martin Brundle. And and every time when we have dinner together and we're really good friends, uh, he still reminds me all the day. I was under his gearbox in Montreal, I think for 30 laps. At one stage, I just was run out of passion, you know, and I just decided in the first corner of that finish line not to break anymore. (laughs) So so I ran into him and put him off. And and he's still still upset with me, you know. Like elephants, never forget, (laughs) never forget hurts to you in a racing driver. Yeah, but you know what? I had a good one once, uh, not the fighting, it it went well, but with Nigel Menzel in Mexico. I think we banged wheels a couple of times in the lap, high speed all the time. And then he he overtook me outside in the in the last corner and what was the name the, the the high speed corner you know the 180 degrees oh yeah and th- there was also a moment where I just said well now what I can do is to make more, to let my car go <laughs> move a little bit outside like Bottas did and he's gonna be there too <laughs> I gonna stay lying and he's gonna be ahead of me I decided <laughs> not to destroy him completely. <laughs> That is probably a good move. Oh, yeah. yeah. Brilliant. Well, should we do that second question, our second and final question now? What do we got? Hi, Damon. Roberto Irvolino from Brazil here. Have a very important question, urgent actually, um, kind of desperate. Please don't tell anyone. But you see, we got spoiled over time. Um, we learned to not celebrate anything less than a podium. However, since 91, no titles and, uh, you know, last time I checked, I don't think there's any Brazilian competing in F1 for quite some time. So the question is, what do you think is the you know, secret formula behind a country producing F1 champions? And I know the obvious answer will be something like, uh, you know, support, sponsorship, a clear path to pro and on and on. But you see, in, in the times of uh, Fittipaldi and Pique and Senna, there was uh, none, and, and today is not different. So what do you think? Thanks. Roberto, well, that's good, because Gerhard can definitely help here because he spent a lot of time with uh, Brazilian uh, teammates. And But I'm just thinking maybe Rubens Barrichello and Felipe Massa need to start having children who like karting. Um, trying to rack my brains because I was speaking to the guy from TV Globo and he was saying there are some good guys coming up, some Brazilian stars coming up. They'll be back. Um, you know, they're always there. Always, they're always a feature of our Formula One racing. It's just we've got a bit of a, uh, a, a kind of a drought at the moment. I think it, it helps a lot if you ISN that it's the, the automobile club in the country provides a good structure, infrastructure for karting. Competitive karting races, good support on the karting side for kids coming up, because that's the ground of the school of racing. In parallel, if you have a superstar in the country, like you had Senna or Fittibaldi or whoever, dynamics got very big. You know, all the fathers like to bring the, the children to the karting place and, and, and support them. And, and, and if this works in parallel, in a good way, then it's going to be created again, young drivers, what's going to be competitive. And I think there is no uh, no doubt there is in every county all the time good drivers around. But as more you can have produced in the first line, and that's karting, as more chance you have to get another superstar. The biggest irony of all this is that neither you nor Damon were karters. Yeah, but it could be also like in our days Formula Ford was. Karting, you're, you're right, we didn't uh, do. I have to say also when I met them guys like Senna, or when we had Schumacher and things, 
these boys what are starting with four years old karting day by day, they are they they get some extra bonus for their career. Damon, did you feel that that the guys who had karted were had that edge, whatever that edge is? Yeah. I didn't actually make any progress in car racing until I went and did a lot. I basically hadn't got anything to drive, so I did indoor karting. And I learned a lot from extracting as much as you possibly can from a um, you know, pretty poor old uh, cart on a very slippery track. And I, and I realized that I'd been missing out. You know, the, the karting training is really important. Gerhard, don't forget, was on the single-seater commission. So he's done a lot of work on organizing and looking at this, the lower formula and the way that the sport is structured. And I think we need to do a lot more, to be honest, to make it more accessible and more easy to, to enter this sport. Um, but I was just thinking, listening to Gerhard, then there's, there's countries, it's not, a, it's not a numbers game. It's somehow it's a passions game because you think about Finland or Austria or New Zealand, you know, these are not high population countries and yet they've turned out disproportionate numbers of uh, great drivers. So it's not so much the numbers of people. I mean, look at the United States, they've got, you know, 350 million people and they don't seem to produce F1 drivers. So it's not a numbers thing. It's something to do with the passion for the sport or facilities in the, in the country and, and also cost as well. Cost is a massive thing, surely. I think you're right, Damon. Yeah. Yeah. I would like just to get quick to one thing before, because actually it was a quite funny question. Uh, Tom, you... Uh, I, it's fantastic to see or to remember two guys fighting after an accident like Damon and Michael, because Damon, the biggest gentleman we all ever had in Formula One, and Michael, the, the roughest karting guy coming out from the street. So he couldn't be more controversial than these two. I'm glad you enjoyed it, Gerhard. As always, you seem to get a massive kick out of life, and it's a joy to, to speak to you and see you again looking well. So thanks for coming on the show. Thank you, Damon. Great to see you. Thanks, Gerhard. Really appreciate your time. Thank you. See you soon. Bye. So thank you to Roberto and Adrian for those questions. Excellent questions they were indeed. And um, if you want to ask a question to me, um, then send it into askdamonhill at gmail.com. And it's, don't forget, it's an audio message. It's not a text message. So you can record your message and we'll play it and we'll try and answer it. And it was great to speak to Gerhard. He's, he has such a passion for everything he does. It's infectious. He's an infectious man. Now, Damon, we're getting to the point in the show where we normally say any other business and have you got any other business otherwise i've got a question for you right we've just done the questions we just had the fans ask why or how come you get a chance to ask a question well because i'm just feeling left out you've got uh, to do an audio message well, no, go <laughs> come on tom okay hit me i want to ask you about the chicane at barcelona because george russell has come out and said if we got rid of the chicane and went back to having two fast corners to end the lap at barcelona he thinks the racing would be better and of course that's what the layout was in your day so i wanted your thoughts on that what was it like to have two quick corners to end the lap or would it improve the racing i agree i totally hate that that little chicane at the end there was nothing wrong with that last but one corner i mean in fact if you look at some of the circuits they go to now the runoff is no worse uh, uh, the last but one corner the last corner is slightly trickier there's there's slightly more difficult because they are going super fast but the point is you can get a run on someone and if you can get that corner right you you basically extended the length of the straight so i was uh sad to see that that combination of corners go and um yeah i kind of agree with him proper quick too brave stuff wasn't it it was yeah you used to have to hang on and, and you bury the car 
you know, into that corner, it would feel great. Um, and if you got it right, you could pick up speed. But I'm not sure these cars might even just be too easily flat through there now. Uh, and they've got a huge DRS effect at Barcelona. So it's maybe not like with, you know, comparing apples with pears, if you see what I mean. Well, except if they are easy flat through that final corner, it means that they'll all be flat, even if you're following someone. So you can get a decent toe and maybe overtake into turn one. Well, with all these things, Tom, uh, somebody will interpret the uh, one driver's suggestion as somehow trying to gain an advantage. So we can Im- we can immediately assume that Williams don't want to have the or Mercedes don't want to have the chicane <laughs> at Barcelona, and then there'll be all sorts of paranoia about that. Yeah, low rake. It's gonna it's gonna help the low rake cars if they have that flat corner, uh, flat exactly. out the final corner at Barcelona. Surely. So one more thing, Tom, interesting movements going on as uh, regards the powertrains. You've got Ben Hodgkinson's leaving the Mercedes camp and going over to Red Bull, who are, of course, talking about doing their own powertrain. So a bit of information transfer, which will have an effect, um, they hope, I'm sure, on their performance. And Mercedes may be losing a grip on one of their key men. Well, it is interesting, isn't it? And it comes on the back of James Allison the technical director of the chassis, stepping back in July. He's going to be kept on at the team as chief technical officer, but I think that's primarily to stop him working for anyone else. But yes, I mean, Ben Hodgkinson has been at Mercedes HPP for 20 years. He's head of mechanical engineering, so he's head of the uh, internal combustion unit of that power unit. A lot of know-how, a lot of brains. Yeah, and he's going to Red Bull. Uh, And he will be taking, as you say, a lot of information with him. I like his story, Damon, because Ben actually flunked his A-levels. So anyone who's listening to this who have got exams coming up, and I know it's all really difficult for for people in the UK who have had GCSEs and A-levels cancelled this year, so it's all done on mocks and various other things. But don't panic, because if you flunk it, you can be Ben Hodgkinson, because he then marked up his A-levels, and he says he corrected it with an engineering foundation year at the University of Leicester back in 1994. And then he went on to get a first in mechanical engineering at University College London and look at him now he's now the technical director of Red Bull Powertrain so he's he's gone on to great well, things. He's suggesting that you flunk your A-levels and then you get a first in mechanical engineering. Yeah it's good isn't it? I mean how does that work? Ben we need to know. Well DH I think that's it for the week. I'm now uh, heading for my pre-event Covid test before flying to Portugal. What do you got on the horizon? Me, uh, I'm gonna, I'm going to be using my my freedom because I'm not actually going to another race until the British Grand Prix, so I'll be watching the races. But uh, I'm going to be getting out there, getting out and enjoying pubs and things like that because I haven't been to a pub for years and years and years. It seems one of my favourite moments when you retired from the, the British Grand Prix in what was it '93? You retired from the lead, didn't you? Go straight to the BRDC and have a pint. That was after I crashed into Michael Schumacher, I think. But um, yeah, it was. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you had to bring it up, didn't you? <laughs> the other thing I'm doing, Tom, is I've got to go now straight from this recording to another recording studio where I'm going to be reading my book aloud for audiobook. And the book, it's not actually my book alone. It's actually me and Johnny Herbert. And it's about Formula One. It's called the, it's Johnny Herbert and Damon Hill, The Good, The Bad and The Bernie of Formula One, Lights Out, Full Throttle. And it's, <laughs> I'm now going to have to read it. Do you, want an ex- do you want an excerpt from it? I could give you a little secret... Uh, so it goes like this. It's basically 
me saying something and then Johnny saying something. This is me. I don't get it then. So why didn't Flavio and Luciano hang around to congratulate you, Johnny? Because their man, who was obviously Italian, had been beaten by a disabled Brit. That sort of thing. OK, so, uh, <laughs> so that's the level of, uh, of intellect in this book. And it's going to be hard work reading it all out loud without laughing. Who do you think is going to win the Portuguese Grand Prix? Final thoughts? Um, I, I don't know. I think Max, I'm, I'm sort of hoping that the Red Bull team are on a roll and they're going to start uh, inching in. But I think that you can't ever discount Lewis Hamilton and, um, or some other unforeseen circumstance. Well, DH, it's been great to chat. And thank you again to Gerhard Berger. Great to have him on the show. And if you've enjoyed what you've heard today, do all the usual things that podcast listeners do. Press follow and all that. F1 Nation is produced by F1 in association with Audioboom. And we will be back next week. In fact, no, we won't, Damon, will we? It's, uh, you're having a week off and it's Pink's next week. Tom, I'm going to miss out on the Portuguese Grand Prix, but I'll be back to talk to you and all about the exciting events of the Spanish Grand Prix. See you next time. Bye. See y'all. See you all.